This is the Daily Detail, powered by 1819 News, Honest News. Alabama. Alabama. Our great state. The voice of Alabama values. Alabama. Unbelievable people. And now, here is Andrea Tice. A long-standing nonprofit organization here in the state is pointing the finger at one Alabama senator for government overspending. The Alabama Policy Institute wrote an article for the 1819 News website about outgoing Senator Richard Shelby. This comes as a result of Shelby's part on the Senate Appropriations Committee in crafting the budget and in voting in favor of the $1.5 trillion spending package for fiscal year 2022. That bill was passed in Congress last week. It was 2,700 pages long. API points out that Shelby was willing to vote for further domestic spending in order to also increase defense spending, and API says this will only drive up inflation even more and force Alabamians to pay more for everyday necessities. API points out that other Alabama delegates who voted to pass the budget are now bragging about bringing home the bacon to Alabamians, regardless of the long-term effect it will have on inflation and Alabamians trying to live within their means. Those members of Congress who also voted to pass the $1.5 trillion budget include Senator Shelby, Senator Tommy Tuberville, U.S. Representatives Terry Sewell, and Jerry Carl. Congressman Mo Brooks expressed dismay at both Democrats and Republicans working together to spend money that America does not have to spend. The Jefferson County Health Department is starting a program that would mail Nalazone to a person's home in an effort to slow down the opioid overdose epidemic. Opioids are able to override brain receptors and can actually slow down a person's breathing to the point of death if they take too much of it. Nalazone reverses an opioid overdose, and if incorrectly used for another medical event, it will not cause harm. The Jefferson County Health Department will actually mail the Nalazone in the form of a nasal spray to those who fill out a mailing address on the Jefferson County Health Department website. The effort is to have the reversal drug in as many hands as possible here in Alabama in the event of a drug overdose. This does not eliminate the need to call 911 for further assistance. An empty textile factory is going to be up and running again soon in Wetumpka. Bell Canvas out of California is going to invest $1.9 million to lease and upgrade a facility that was once used by Russell Brands. The 890,000-square-foot building has been vacant since 2013. Bella Canvas produces clothing for retail and wholesale markets. The move will bring 550 new jobs to that area. Bella Canvas currently has 1,000 employees in Los Angeles at their cutting facility, and they cut almost 3 million garments in one week. The type of jobs that will be needed for the Watumka facility include general cutting laborers, forklift operators, shipping and receiving clerks, and administrative staff. The name of a man who was killed in an officer-involved shooting in Decatur is now made public. 33-year-old Nicholas Odin was shot several times by police following his invasion of a home and the taking of the homeowner's car, but only after he shot the homeowner in the leg. Police say that Odin also opened fire on police when they caught up with him and the stolen car on Old Highway 24. The pilot who died in a plane crash in South Alabama has now been identified. Robert Doyle Hickman of Mobile was the only person on board the plane when it took off from the airport in Bay Minette. Apparently, that plane continued to taxi off of the tarmac into rough ground and then overturned. Hickman died as a result of that plane turning over. His dog was also on board, but was uninjured in that accident. For more in-depth stories affecting the state of Alabama, go to 1819news.com. In national news, over this past weekend, there were more developments in the ongoing Ukraine-Russia conflict. Russian officials 
had an emergency meeting at the United Nations Security Council where they accused the United States of violating the 1972 Bioweapons Treaty. Russia says that the U.S. did so by funding and creating labs in Ukraine through the Department of Defense. Well, the Daily Detail was able to sit down and talk to Alabama native Kyle Boyette, who recently retired from UAB after 30 years there, where he headed up the biosafety programs at UAB Labs and also was Director of Emergency Management. Boyette says that according to classification of labs, the most dangerous labs are not the ones that are used for making dangerous bioweapons. You have four different biosafety levels, one through four, uh, with four being the most hazardous uh, materials that you can work with. Examples of that would be Ebola and smallpox, and which smallpox is supposedly eradicated in, in the wild. In all reality, there's not but a handful of labs around the world that work at biosafety level four. That's kind of what you see in the movies, uh, that kind of biosafety level. However, with biosafety level three, you're going to find most of the agents that would be responsible for any sort of biological weaponry. Uh, Through various uh, biological means and manipulation, they're actually able to do gain of function, meaning that they make... uh, somewhat innocuous material, much more infectious to a particular population, that population being either uh, an animal, livestock, for example, or agriculture, corn products, cotton, whatever the case may be, or even humans. Boy, it also detailed the elements of the treaty that Russia claims was violated. You start thinking about bioweaponry and biolabs, you have to go back to before 1972, but there was a turning point in April of 1972 where there was an anti-bioweapons convention that was signed by most of the countries in the world, all of the big countries. Uh, Russia signed it. U.S. signed it. Uh, there's a number of countries that signed U.K. signed it. But anyway, that basically said that we're not going to produce biological weapons of an offensive nature. Well, biological weapons and toxins is generally the way it's referred to, but uh, that we're not going to produce and we're not going to do research on biological weapons and toxins of an offensive nature. Now, when you start talking about offensive versus defensive, which is the way the politicians want to play the game, there's a very, very fine line between the research that could be conducted for one versus the research conducted for the other. Boyette says another law was passed about 10 years ago to shore up that differentiation between offensive and defensive bioweapons. There was a law that was passed that talked about getting a handle on what's referred to as dual-use research. Okay, Now, what dual-use research is, is legitimate research, and this can be on biologicals, it can be in the field of engineering, it can be a number of different things. But what dual-use research and and where the government has tried to get a handle on this, and quite honestly, they've not been able to get a handle on it, uh, a good handle on it, and that is where you're doing actually legitimate research, but the byproduct of that particular research could be used for nefarious purposes. The Daily Detail will continue talking to Boyette on this emerging story in tomorrow's report as well. In this past year, it's become very obvious that Kentucky Senator Rand Paul is no fan of the director of the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Now the senator is offering a proposal that makes that fact even clearer 
Paul is offering an amendment that would divide the NIAID into three separate research institutes, one for allergies, one for infectious diseases, and the other for immunology. Paul says this is required in order to return to accountability and oversight of a taxpayer position that has already abused its power and been responsible for misinformation during the COVID-19 pandemic. Under Paul's new proposal, the directors for each institute would be confirmed by the Senate every five years. Paul, who is also a medical doctor and has been for more than 30 years, called current director Fauci a dictator-in-chief and said he has never seen such gall as when Fauci said that anyone attacking him is attacking science. A former equity investment executive has spoken on Real America's Voice recently, showing some bombshell numbers about young adults ages 25 to 40 who suddenly died in the last half of 2021. Edward Dowd once worked for BlackRock Portfolio Management. He says he and a friend who has insurance expertise crunched the numbers coming from the Center for Disease Control, and here's what they found out. This is the CDC's own data that they aggregate into um, all ages. The bottom line is my uh, insurance industry expert, former sell-side Wall Street analyst, went into the CDC data. We were looking for other things, but what we found was pretty shocking. He took the data, and it, it took some time and effort. He did a lot of work. He broke it down by age, and he created baselines for each age group to come up with excess mortality. And the money chart is really chart four, which shows that the millennial age group, 25 to 44, experienced an 84% increase in excess mortality into the fall. Um, Just to give you an idea, when you look at chart four, you see when mandates and boosters hit the acceleration into the fall, and then um, it re-accelerated into uh, the end of the year. The drop-off in that data you see there is reporting issues. It takes time for millennial age uh, deaths to be reported because they're usually not hospital deaths. So um, that data is going to be updated and probably shows a continued uh, disturbing trend. So just to put some numbers on this, um, in the fall, uh, starting in the summer into the fall with the mandates and the boosters, um, there were 61,000 excess millennial deaths. Basically, millennials experienced a Vietnam War in in the second half of 2021, okay? 58,000 people died in the Vietnam War, uh, U.S. uh, troops. So this generation just experienced a Vietnam War. And I think this is the smoking gun that the vaccines are causing excess mortality in all age groups. And uh, it's no coincidence that uh, Michelle Walensky refuses to answer Senator Ron Johnson's letters. They're hiding. Fauci's gone. She's gone. They're hiding. So I'm going to put a, a word out there. Uh, and it's, it's a word that's old, but it needs to be reintroduced in the conversation. This is what we call democide, death by government. So the government, through the mandates, has killed people. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin is effectively putting an end to another Biden nomination, this time for the Federal Reserve Board. Manchin has come out publicly as opposed to the nominee, Sarah Raskin, for that position. Manchin says the United States needs policy leaders and economic experts who are focused on rising inflation and energy costs. Manchin did not say specifically what it was he opposed about Raskin's resume, but Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey has led the opposition to Raskin's nomination for that job, and he says her revolving door between public and private employment, along with lobbying efforts for one particular company, policy positions, and her forgetfulness during Senate questioning are just a few of the reasons why he's opposed to her. 
White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki defended the president's nominee, saying Raskin is one of the most qualified individuals to ever be nominated to the Federal Reserve. You're listening to The Daily Detail from 1819 News. You won't want to miss out on Phil Williams on Right Side Radio as he discusses an interview given by Governor Kay Ivey on the subject of education here in the state of Alabama. Alabama ranks dead last in the nation, by the way. Let me refresh your memory in case you hadn't already heard the news. Alabama ranks dead last in the nation. Number 50. If you break them down by categories, in math, we are 52nd. Oh, my Lord, Phil, how do you come in 52nd out of a number of 50 states? Well, because they also add in Puerto Rico and the Department of Defense schools uh, overseas for our dependents. Hmm. Okay. So we're 52nd out of 50 states in math. And there was zero plan. I want to remind you, by the way, that Governor Ivey, by virtue of her position as governor, is the de facto head of the state school board. That she has been the state treasurer for, I want to say, four or eight years, followed by being the lieutenant governor for six years, followed now by being the governor for six years. And we fell to 50 on her watch. Money is not the issue. In fact, if you look at the nationwide rankings, there are at least eight to 10 other states that spend less per child than we do on education and rank higher than us in the rankings. What does that tell you? That money is not the issue. So here she is running for re-election right now, 50th in the nation, and the best she can do is say, well, education is important. We need to do something about this. Did you hear anything about school choice? No. Did you hear anything about how we're going to improve our scores? No. Did you hear anything in there that sounded like this was a well-thought-out response to a pretty much obvious interview question? No. Like I said, I would think that right now, her communications team is going, oh, crap. Because that interview did nothing for her reelection. Nothing at all. You can find more of Phil Williams at rightsideradio.org. If you're enjoying the daily detail and want to make sure those reports are brought to you every morning directly to your phone or electronic device, well, if you go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and subscribe, that's exactly what will happen. I'm Andrea Tice. I'll be back again tomorrow. I look forward to updating you then. Alabama. Alabama. Our great state. Alabama. Of Alabama. This has been The Daily Detail. For more up-to-date news, go to 1819news.com, where you'll find honest news and Alabama values. 